In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Helping to lead the nonprofit society of which Rector's Cupboard is a part has occasioned meeting many wonderful and interesting people. Our guest today is one such person. We met Mark Peterson through a fundraising network that supports various charitable works, many having to do with international development. Mark works with family foundations that fund and support nonprofits. He's familiar with this space as he gave oversight to his family foundation before starting an app called Stronger Philanthropy, which aims to bring together donors and charities. We've really enjoyed getting to know Mark and have made sure to connect with him in person and on some of his trips to and through Vancouver. He's insightful and funny and clearly has a love for people and for supporting the meaningful work that Stronger Philanthropy helps to make possible. We speak with Mark about money, fundraising, travel, and spiritual pilgrimage. We hope that you enjoy the conversation. Well, welcome. We are very pleased to be having Mark Peterson on uh, Rector's Cover today. Uh, Mark is the CEO of Stronger Philanthropy, a firm created to serve major donors with administrative services and as a granting hub for high-impact charitable projects. Uh, over Mark's 22-year career as a philanthropy advisor, he's overseen the awarding of Oh, this is a lot of grants. Wow. 1,638 grants. It's also very particular. Yeah. <laughs> Totaling $64 million. Approximately. Yes. Her, I mean, there, there wasn't a, a like <laughs> sense and stuff yeah, okay. amount. Um, Stronger Philanthropy currently serves uh, 12 families to advise them in their giving and provide them with streamlined services to manage their philanthropy. Uh, he's also created the Stronger Philanthropy Community, which is an online space for networking and resources and available through an app that's brought over 150 charity leaders and major donors from across Canada together for achieving a shared mission. So I've got the app and it's good. Yeah. Okay. Welcome, Mark. It's really great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Joining us, joining us from Columbia, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's right. I'm in Columbia. <laughs> but on <laughs> Zoom here, he... Here. And on Zoom, you've got like the, the nice most white background. White background. <laughs> you, you could be anywhere in the world. So, so but we'll believe, we'll believe that he's in yes. Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> so I have uh, taxis going by from time to time honking their horns. So you might hear oh, good. Andy is from Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, thank you, Mark, again for being here. We'd love to start by, by just talking a little bit about you, about your history, what you're doing right now, how you got to where you are. So however you want to... Take that and start. We'd love to just hear a little bit about you. Well, great. Thanks. Um, yeah, my background. Wow. That's going back a few years, Allison. And uh, I, I uh, went to seminary in Toronto, and that's where Karen and I met. Hmm. And uh, as an, I was at an evangelical seminary, Tyndale, mm -hmm. before it changed its name to Tyndale, actually. And uh, Karen and I met there. Um, one of the people that we met while we were studying there was a guy named Ruben 
Ramirez, who um, was a classmate of mine. He was in the same dorm as me. We got to be friends. He was a Colombian. Hmm. And he ended up getting married to another friend of ours at the same time that Karen and I got married. And we ended up, the four of us, going to Colombia as missionaries together as a team. And we worked with Latin American Mission. We were working with um, church leaders, uh, helping local congregations strategize and plan for growing their churches in at the time that we were there, the city of Manizales, which is in the coffee growing area. So, you know, all that great Colombian coffee. Oh, yeah. drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I lived in that city. Oh it my was goodness. Place. <laughs> Amazing place. And sorry, but Mark, when was this? This was in 91. Oh, okay. 1991 that we moved uh, to Latin America. So, so we were, we were there for 91 until 95 and throughout the, all the nineties, we ended up working with three different charities. Um, we were always trying to find the right fit, the right place for us. Hmm. Uh, Columbia remains still my favorite place on earth. Hmm. This is why even years later, we still keep coming back every year, uh, hopefully to escape the Canadian winter a little Uh. bit. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you for that. (laughs) Yes. Um, and of course we have friends here and we have a community of sorts that we, uh, get together with from time to time. But you're, you're going back now as kind of visitors. Uh, yeah. you're, you're not doing the mission work that you were doing in those years. How do you get from that work to the kind of work you're doing now? That's right. Yeah. So, so I was doing the mission work for 10 years. Uh, let's say all the nineties was my mission career. In the year 2000, uh, what happened was uh, my my family had a foundation. They started a foundation. Uh, It had been going for a couple of years, but it became apparent in around the year 2000 that they needed, it it needed some leadership. It was, it had grown to a certain size that required leadership. Otherwise it would be a real waste of strategic assets. Mm. And we needed to, we needed to kind of, create a strategic plan, develop a purpose for this um, endowment that mm. the family was managing. Mm-hmm. Um, without without having a strategy, you know, I, I took it as, you know, I could see us wasting the money every year, just throwing it away to, to causes and things. And it would go to good stuff, but it wouldn't be strategically invested in, in um, things that would leverage the power of that money you know Mm. and so i started on at bridgeway foundation in the year 2000 and developed a strategy around building capacity for canadian charities and and uh, funding innovation for canadian charities bridgeway had a focus on christian charities and so that's basically what they were funding about 10 percent of their money always went to their local community and it was invested in things like the hospital and United way and local mm-hmm. community stuff as well. Um, so that was, that was my time with Bridgeway foundation that lasted from 2000 up until 2015. And in 2016, I started my own firm called stronger philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's when we flipped 
Bridgeway from being my employer to being a client. Uh, And I then started adding other families into the client base for stronger philanthropy. So I was still doing the same thing for Bridgeway, but um, serving multiple families, not just the one family. Hmm. So we, we now have 12 families that I'm working with and uh, those are 12 different either foundations or funds that are trying to be strategic about what they're doing with their money hmm. and their then, generosity. And then I find that it's such an interesting location, right? That And not that many people are in the space that you're in. So I'll describe it as kind of in between the foundations and the charities, right? With, I would imagine, yeah. what you just described, with the goal of helping those families and foundations in the ways that in like when, when you started with Bridgeway, like when you moved to that role at Bridgeway. So you want to help these foundations in the way that you thought was necessary at that time. So you must see that. So tell us about that location. What's it like to be, <laughs> I mean, in some ways you come more from the world of the foundation because you were managing your family foundation, right? Mm-hmm. So that's your kind of first place, but now, and even the mission work you were doing, you, you know, you're in between those those spaces. What, what's what's good and kind of life giving about that? Being yeah. in the middle, like connecting with both. I I love being in the middle. I love being in this ambiguous space <laughs> and creating my own space. <laughs> and and it's it's a good place for me to be. Um, you know, and I think it does actually unite my my history because. I was in the charitable space. I raised money for my salary. You know, like I was, yeah. I was a missionary on support. <laughs> and so I know what it's like to have to raise, mm. raise your, your salary wow. um, from friends and family and churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went into the philanthropic space where um, I, w- I was offering grants to charities. So it's, learning how to kind of navigate and be in both of those spaces. And now sharing that with, with families, um, it's an interesting place to be. Hmm. Like in our, uh, in our world these days, like just given the, the importance of money, like how it's kind of mm. for, for most people, if, if, if there's anything close to kind of a universal value, it, it is the kind of arbitrary value we put on money, but because it's agreed. Um, I, then what I'm thinking here is, the people that were used to kind of asking for things are the people that, you know, we want to find out their, what they think, what they, t- most people think those are the ones with money. Those are the people who are appealed to, right? Yeah. That, yes. that they're in that kind of one up position all of the time, but you know, many of some of these people, and then you realize like the human frailties and all the kinds of things that are there, that they're not, you know, they're not that kind of impervious, distant person that, uh, just even like reflecting on that, what's it, what's it like to connect with people who um, are, are wealthy enough that they're in that place all the time, often of being appealed to, how, mm-hmm. how does, how do you connect with them as people? Like, cause you must, you, you're obviously very, very good at that. Everybody puts their pants on one, yeah. one leg at a time, you know, <laughs> and you know, and I just believe, and I know from my experience we are all human. We are all full of our, we all suffer. We all have frailties. We all don't have it. None of us have it together. Uh, And, you know, even the wealthy 
um, even though they might be financially comfortable. Uh, so many of the wealthy that I know are also suffering in other ways that are invisible and intangible, perhaps. Well you know, so, you know, like we just li we live in a world that is is a tough place to be sometimes, and uh, it everybody has their own journey and has their own story that is uh, unique. Oh, so well said. Thanks. Um, we we have your book, which was published in 2017, Love Giving Well. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask you some some questions about this. Um, the audience for your book here is that's for like people to understand kind of how this the world of philanthropy functions and ways in which people can sometimes like navigate that sort of system. Am I correct in that? Like, is that your intended yeah. audience? Like, because yep. there's part where like you have like a wealth of knowledge about how this world functions. And I think a lot of people uh, don't necessarily, they may be new to the the charity sphere or they may be, you know, struggling with, with finding that success. But with your, with your book, you end up using like the metaphor of, of hiking, which is like great. Like, and pilgrimage, yes, right? I have a question. Is this, is this you that's on the front cover here or no, is the, this, the <laughs> no, the, fr the front cover picture uh, was taken by a fellow pilgrim, a oh. friend of mine who I met along the way. Oh, okay. He was a Mexican photojournalist oh, uh, for, for La Reforma newspaper. So walking along the way, this guy had his massive camera that was like, <laughs> you know, must have been so heavy. I don't know how it fit in his back. <laughs> but, but he was like, obviously this expert photojournalist, right? And anyway... And by the way, this guy, I should share with you his uh, Instagram uh, page because he has the most amazing collection of bullfighting photos that oh, you you've ever seen. Oh. No. I will send it to yeah. you. Yeah, so we'll make sure that we, we put this image up so that people listening can actually see the picture that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I'd love yeah. if you could give us a little bit of context for how, you know, your own experience of, of this, this pilgrimage Um and how you see that tying into to your framework for how you're explaining philanthropy. So, like, tell us a little bit about your hike, about your journey, and then why, like, how you made that connection to be like, oh, I could use this to help people understand this. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's uh, the pilgrimage was something that I was compelled to do. I heard about it from a friend a long time ago, and he had he and his wife had done it. And so in 2014, I did my first pilgrimage with my son, Nate. Hmm. Um, we walked for a month through Spain and ended up doing it three more times after that. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Alone, alone the next three times and meeting people along the way, you know, and becoming friends along yeah. the way with other people. And so for me, those journeys, uh, 2014, 15, 16, and then I just did it again the fourth time last year in 20. Two. Don't 21. No, 22. Yeah, 2022. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out what year we're in. None of us, none of us know it's the year anymore. January we're all that like way. This yeah. Weird liminal space. Yeah. No, but also, <laughs> yes. yeah, just the, yeah. after, after going through the pandemic, I thought, I know, I know. got to get on that Camino again because, like, that's, <laughs> uh, that's being locked down. So, um, anyway, uh, but for me, you know, as I walked, you know, starting my own business and, and being in this philanthropic space, mm -hmm. 
of course, there's just tons of time every day to process and mm-hmm. think through your life and your work and your relationships and everything that you think about. And uh, of course, for me, as I was walking along, you know, I was getting blisters, I was limping, I was getting lost, I was lonely, I was meeting people that became like family. Um, I was losing people, you know, like different things happen. I was not knowing where I was going to stay at night. Um, it, it became kind of a metaphor to me of my own journey in, in philanthropy as well, mm. because as I've been doing this career for 22 years now, all of those things that I just described happened on the Camino happened, have yeah. happened to me in my philanthropy too. Mm. You know, I've been lost. I've been confused. I've been, uh, I've had, I've acquired friends. I've lost friends, you know, um, I've been lonely. All these things have happened in the journey of philanthropy as well as in my physical journey across Spain. (laughs) Before you wrote the book, did you know, or like, so I'm picturing one of these times, are most of the stories in the book because I love how you interweave some of those stories of being on the trail um, and then open a chapter, you know, some concepts. Um, did you know when you were on one of those pilgrimages that you would be writing a book about it? So were you looking for ideas or did it come later? Uh, the way the book came together was on my first pilgrimage, I thought I'm going to write a book. Okay. I didn't know. I didn't know how I was going to write it with this format, but on the second pilgrimage, as I was doing my daily journal entries, that's when I got the idea. I'm going to make, I'm going to write this book and every chapter is going to start with my journal entry right. from that. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it just eventually kind of all came together. So you have this, and some of the journal entries are great. You have this journal entry I'm thinking of now. I could pull it up in the book, but um where you talk about encountering a troll. Um, this is, you, you open <laughs> this it, is it's later in the book. You open it by basically saying, describing the kind of um, convoluted Spanish uh, principle of like provinces and territories and such. And so, and then there's this troll that, well, you call this, this, this being a troll standing by some kind of religious type, you know, thing. And then you realize, oh, I think they want some money so that I like, and then I can light a candle or something and you do that. And then, and then in the same journal entry, you mention a French pilgrim, a woman that you had come across before and she seems to kind of be paralyzed or lost. And then you realize, I think she's lost her cell phone or something. And then you, you kind of talk about that. So I'm looking at all these experiences and I, you, you draw them in such a way that I think people can identify with them. So many things seem kind of random. Like this oh, happened yeah. today and I wasn't ready for it. And then, then this happened on that, on that entry because you must have been writing the journal entry at the end of the day or, or another day or something later because you yeah. mentioned how those incidents that I just described made you late. Like you kind of plan, so you arrive somewhere later and even you, you, you realize that you're going to be late so you actually sit down for a two-hour dinner somewhere which is not always what happens. Um, and then... Then you don't quite know where you're going to stay, and then you have a kindly innkeeper who... So there's this like interplay of how needs are met, but how things happen that you're not aware of. Um, and you know what came into my mind as, as you were describing that, and you've already referred to it here, 
you kind of through all these uh, things that seem random, you're kind of carrying your life on your back at the same time, right? The, yeah. Everybody oh, talks wow. about their backpacks and how full they are, how small <laughs> or big or how, and you carry yeah. your personal kind of experience, your history onto this trail. I would imagine, so here's the question. I would imagine there are times when you want, like, especially if you're doing this in kind of a religious pilgrimage or a faith thing where you want some lesson from God that you want this thing to be like, and then I encountered this and it really gave me this epiphany. And, but it must just be sometimes it just seems like these random little things yeah. um, is most of the trail just kind of mundane <laughs> with these little things I, happening. The word that was just coming to my mind okay. is mundane. Hmm. Was, yeah. Like there's lots of mundane. I mean, yeah. <laughs> There are very few, you know, transcendental moments. Right, where but everybody goes, or most people go on these things looking for those, right? Mm. Right, looking right. Looking for that, yeah. But I find, I find God in the mundane, actually, and I find transformation in the mundane. I mean, I think the mundane speaks to me. Yeah. It's, maybe it's the way I'm wired or something. Yeah, yeah there's a beauty in it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, like the, the chance encounter, the, you know, I find God in those moments. I told uh, one story in the book is about how I was walking along and I as with two friends that I had met, met along the way, a German guy, a German woman and a, a American guy and walking along and they both had these really nice poles, walking stick, walking poles, you know, that I did not have. I just <laughs> was, was hoping to find a stick that I could use as I walked, you know. And we were kind of in the mountains and walking through a forest and I'm, and I'm needing, I'm realizing this is the third or fourth day and I'm realizing I actually need a stick because I would be much more helped if I had a stick to walk with. And I told the two of them, I said, I need a stick. So if you see something, you know, let me know. And they're all, you know, panicking, looking around for a stick for me. And it kind of got to be, too much and I said hey guys just forget about it like let's keep, keep walking and the stick will come to me when it's meant to come to me you know and we kept walking and all of a sudden out of the blue in the forest in the middle of this forest I hear a voice and he calls out hey in Spanish hey you need a stick and I looking around and my two friends are looking around with me. Where did that voice come from? And we look in the forest and there's this Basque man in the forest. And he has, he's like got an ax and he's like a woodcutter in the forest. This <laughs> sounds like said, a fairy tale or some sort of like fantasy thing. No, it's just like a fairy tale. And this he, was not he, the troll. This was the, the woodsman. Guy. Yeah. Yeah, he takes this holly uh, bush or whatever it was. And he trims off all the branches he cuts it down right in front of me and he hands me this perfectly formed stick, walking stick that I can walk with. Amazing. And I said, I said, uh, what's your name? And he said, my name's Antonio. I said, you're San Antonio del Bosque. You're St. Anthony of the, of the forest. <laughs> so I christened him St. Anthony of the forest because I thought this guy is a miracle man. He just appeared out of nowhere and That's gave me a stick. Such a great story. I had my, what, my question that I had was, how do you encounter God um, on on the trail? But you just you found a saint. Answered it already. <laughs> um, but there's a parallel to that too, right? Because you write this, you write that experience and those experiences as metaphor for kind of the journey in terms of your work um, 
in the philanthropic sphere, helping foundations and such. Um, that that so, where do you experience God in that work, even mm. in the mundane? Not on the trail now, but in in the work. Yeah, that's a great question, and I think I I find it again just by doing the mundane and and meeting people. You know, like I know that Todd, you and I met a yeah. couple weeks ago in person, yeah. which was very you know doesn't always happen, but um, in my app. I have an app that maybe we can talk about later, but I have an app that is a virtual space for the community that I have and that we are becoming a community together in the app. But occasionally from time to time, we'll put up an event where we actually meet in person. And I happened to be out in BC and just randomly put up this event and ended up meeting Allison and Todd and Amanda and uh, several others for brunch one morning. And it was beautiful, you know, and I find God in that. I find, you know, the, the, you know, the act of faith that it is to get out of your comfort zone and come together with other people that you don't know Hmm. and have a share a meal together. That's a pretty cool thing Yeah, where you find God. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't think that, that you paint like a romanticized, picture of, of either the, the hike or, or of work in charity. Um, not, not like, I'm not wishing to like put like a, a nice like damper on anything, but I think in, in the, in the interest of, of talking about some of the reality of, of working in charities and stuff, what, what have some of the challenges that, that you faced been? Cause there's part where like charities struggle, foundations struggle, like things don't always go the way that you hope they will. And um, and there's part where I think if you're not in that sphere, it can be really hard to always like understand what that could be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think the biggest challenge that I face in, in the philanthropic space is the tendency is that it is a very transactional space mm. because people are there because they need money and they need support for what they're doing. And so as good as it is, it, bec- it becomes about the transaction. Mm. And what I try to do in my work is move it out of that transactional mentality to becoming more of a transformational type of space. Mm. Um, and of course, that's very, you know, idealistic, but of course, but, but that's what I want to move to, you know, because hmm. the transactions are necessary, Yeah. but can they be more than that? I think they can be more than that. Hmm. I love that answer. Yeah. I, I, and, you know, I think one of the reasons, Mark, that I love that answer is the number of times that we've had conversation and then uh, seen each other in person. Um, you seem like one of the least transactional people <laughs> that, I've, that I've met like it, it and, and maybe that's because in a way that's the world in which in which you live but when we ask you the question of like finding God in in the work you mentioned a brunch at a hotel restaurant and seeing people maybe you hadn't met before and that for everything that I've seen with you that's true that's that's where you come to life and it, it seems to me and it's but it brings up another question in terms of motivation 
right? That, and it's not to identify negative motivation, but I think some of the negative is, is interesting as well. Um, but, you know, the positive is super important. We have, so you're working with foundations who are giving a lot of good, a lot of money for, for good causes. Yeah. Um, and not everybody does that. Not every wealthy, wealthy person does that, right? What are some of the kind of the positive and negative motivations that you've seen for this giving? Yeah. I think motivations are always probably quite mixed. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, is there anybody that has pure motivations? Right. I don't think it's possible really, but yeah. I think generally, you know, um, the people that I'm trying to help and work with, many of them, I think have honest motivations yeah. of trying to mm. do it for a, uh, uh, a positive benefit to the world. Yeah. Um, th- there are, you know, philanthropy also has a, de- a dark side, a, a negative side when philanthropy is done to, for self aggrandizement mm-hmm. or for, you know, promoting yourself or promoting your business. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily an altruistic motivation. Um, even though a transaction might have happened that that is a positive thing, you know? Um, so it's interesting. I think that there are very mixed motivations that we all have in, in our philanthropy. Yeah. It, it must be amazing though, to, I'm thinking of the positive side. It, it must be amazing to be in that in-between space, to work with these foundations. They fund some project or something, right? With like yeah. helping people get clean water or, you know, helping people out of conditions of like, economic or other kinds of slavery or whatever it might be around the world or all these types of things that that you're supporting it must be an amazing thing to see hugely positive results and then to and then to work in between the the charity and the foundation to go like look at what happened yeah this must be uh what like i can see the how how beautiful that must be um, and then I look back to, I think of this such a small example, you, you speak about missions to when I was like, a you know, working with youth as a, as a pastor in church and we were doing all these, like Amanda has been on some of these like missions trips or whatever, like working in really poor areas in Mexico or whatever. And there was a time when like, as the, as those things were growing, you might have like 10 people one year, 30 people the next year, 40 people. And then among the leadership and this kind of happens, right? We need to make sure, cause then you have an application process, whether you're going to let this young person, college student or high school student go and and then there was always that question are the, are they properly motivated right, right. And, you're kind of, and, yeah. and I was always a little bit like well who cares <laughs> like unless unless they're literally yeah. wanting to go to do damage um they're doing a good thing and yeah. there must be yeah. those times where it's like but over time you can see some of those negative things and how they're a little bit soul destroying instead of life-giving right that it's yeah uh, uh, it's great that you work in that space mm-hmm. I <laughs> I had a question as you you spoke as a, some of your motivation for starting Stronger Philanthropy was that you were seeing that, you know, resources like assets are are being given away and funding projects that you, you, you talk about how they may not have sustainability or that it's, it's not the most effective way to use those funds. Um, I'm interested from, from a charity perspective, because I would think although there would be exceptions, most people who start charities, um, they're wanting to do good, but what are things that 
that charities should be looking to do, and I think you you address this a little bit in your book with your the, the concept, the metaphor of um, dashboard indicators. Like, what sort of things should charities be looking at to be like? This is what will help make you sustainable. These are things that point towards foundations looking to invest in you because they see that what you're the model that you're doing isn't just well, we're wanting to do good work. And you're like, okay, that's great. But like, what, what are things that, that the foundations that, that you're working with are looking for to, to try to ensure that their investment of resources, their donations that they're doing are actually being used kind of to like to the best kind of yeah. way that it can be. Yeah. I, what I, what I advise my clients on is, is always to be, to thoughtfully invest their funds by selecting charities that are healthy. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's investing in healthy charities because healthy charities are the ones that will have healthy programs and healthy outcomes. So unhealthy charities w- would be those charities that financially they're not able to make ends meet. Mm-hmm because they're always scrambling for funds mm-hmm. or, and, and th- that, that economic challenge that they face will impact their programming. Yeah. Because, the, because mm. things are not healthy structurally with the organization, it will impact the programs. And so um, even though they might be doing really positive and mm-hmm. good things, programs, over time, you know, you'll see challenges. I just had a conversation mm-hmm. yesterday with um, two gentlemen who I have high admiration for, who are working for working with a, an organization, and the organization itself is disintegrating all around them. Mm-hmm. And these two guys. Um, I value what they do and I, I think that what they're doing is worth saving and I'm encouraging them to find another uh, charity to work with, you know, because I'm counseling my other, my givers, I'm counseling them to not give to this charity anymore because it is falling apart. I'm, I'm aware that it's, yeah, you know, and that, that any investment in it going forward will not, be sustainable going forward, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's, that's, um, I mean, that's kind of a reality of when you're, when you're dealing with financial funding is, um, even though somebody might be doing good work, if it, if it's not structured in a way that, that is using those funds well and in a sustainable way, um, it can be wasting resources that, could be going to it. I mean, I, I would imagine that some of, some of the, the, the families that, that you counsel, the foundations that you work with, there must just be an overwhelming kind of like, how would I even know? Where would I even go? And I feel like that's part of what you're wanting to do with the stronger philanthropy community that you're building is you're wanting to connect charities that are, you know, being healthy, doing good work and being like, these are people that we have connections with so that you can donate to these with a level of confidence. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Kind of in some of your intention is making some of those connections together. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Hmm. I'm, I'm looking 
looking to develop that and and for for the relationship to flourish and where like I, I'm particularly interested in the clients that I have. I, I'm interested in seeing my clients move out of a transactional space and enter into a space where they can be transformed by the charitable mm. need and, and reality that's there. Like when you look at, for example, the downtown east side of Vancouver, and you look at many charities that are working there, let's use Union Gospel Mission as an example, doing fantastic work. I have one client that uh, she actually, so she's a principal of a foundation, but she volunteers uh, her time at Union Gospel Mission as well. Mm-hmm. And so she is offering her skills and abilities in the area of counseling. And even though she's giving, able to give large grants, she's also involved personally mm-hmm. and being transformed by the engagement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, and her life is being changed and those around her are being changed because she's actually involved. It's not just about a transaction for her. Yeah, I think there's something really, <clears throat> really beautiful in that. And there's, I think what, if I'm understanding how you're explaining this correctly, that there's there's a way in which, both on, I think, the the side of the foundations and the families and the donors that you're working with and the charities, there's like a call for like a human, like a rehumanizing that process yeah. instead of it just being that people who have money are checkbooks and bank accounts and, well, we're just going to give, like, it, it ends up, yeah, what you're calling for is like, there is a necessary like financial aspect, a necessary transactional aspect, like, but that you're calling for in order for people to actually be impacted by the charitable giving that they're doing, there is more than just writing a check. Yeah. The way I look at it is um, if you look at any charity, let's, let's use um, you guys, let's use reflector project as an example. Okay. So you have Amanda, Allison, Todd, you're, you're, you're there a hundred percent of the time you're working there and you're enthusiastic about what you do. Um, but the, then you also have the people that support you mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. what you do and all of you are gathered and the supporters of what you're doing are gathered around your mission. Mm-hmm. They're supporting you because of the mission that you have. Mm-hmm. You're, you guys are giving your, you know, your time, your intellectual capital, your availability, um, into the mission of the organization some of your donors that you have aren't able to give that, but they can give their financial capital. Mm-hmm. You're all offering some something yeah. into, into the middle of the table and you're all feasting on what is at mm-hmm. the table. And that's the way I like to, to view it. Like the, the philanthropists, even though they're giving money, it's just one thing that's needed at the table of mm-hmm. charity uh-huh. mission. And you also need people, you need boots on the ground. You need yeah. people who you're, smart who are capable giving of their time giving of their effort um showing up mm-hmm. you know you need all of those people mm-hmm. around the mission and then the financial is just another piece of the puzzle so you had um other dashboard indicators as well and you've already kind of alluded to them in these answers um mission like like charities or foundations will be looking for like 
is the mission clear? Is it something that mm-hmm. aligns with what, who we are and what we want to see happen? Uh, there's also, I think, in their leadership, like the people mm-hmm. matter. Like, is there confidence in the people who are leading mm-hmm. this? Like, can you see it yeah. and meet them? But I'm going to introduce a little bit of tension into this, like, because I, I totally get that. You want to put the money where you think it will have impact and stuff. But of course, the tension is, and I, I imagine this is something that the foundations, people in the foundations experience as well, is that then... Um, the kind of machine charities or the th- like a union gospel mission or whatever that's really honed how to do this, that really they get, they get the support, which is great, right? But then there must be times when those foundations, and particularly individuals in the foundations, go, I really like this over here. <laughs> and I'm not too sure about all these things, but so either they're directing funds there, maybe not a big grant or whatever, they're becoming partners or helping out at least a little bit consistently, or saying, um, I really like what you're doing here. It's intriguing to me, but it's a bit of a mess. And so <laughs> we're going to help you with the management side of it. Do you see some of that uh, as well? I do. Yeah. And what I would say in response to that, that's a great thing that you've kind of laid out as the way things are. That's so true. Um, I, I see my clients and any donor, uh, any family out there that's generous, every, everybody has their own got their own chemistry, their own kind of way the things that resonate with them and how they operate. And so there, there are donors out there that they are so they're super conservative donors. They want to give just a blue chip mm-hmm. level yeah. charities because they know that giving to world vision is going to yeah. produce a result. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though, uh, you know, it's a massive charity right. that the big, it's the biggest charity in Canada, you know, um, but then there's other donors who are, I have one client who <laughs> he just loves startups, yeah. he loves start, you know, mm-hmm. and so he'll, he'll fund the yeah. startups, you know, at which a startup by, by its very nature is not a healthy charity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although I yeah. that, like you would probably, which, which means ignorant of that, which means in order for charities to be established and new they things to, to happen, they are unha- like you mentioned that in the book, you talk about the draw to kind of holy discontent, this yeah. sense of, uh, charities and like they're kind of shaking things up and the blue chips are not for the most part, shaking things up, right? right? They've honed. Right. And so I, I love that you talk about to, Yeah. I'm attracted to the ships. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's Would fantastic. that be us? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of like you, yes. Yeah. No, I, I think it's it's really interesting. Like as as somebody who like I'm I'm reasonably new to kind of the the charity side of things. We're we're a few years old and there's a lot of things we're learning and you know, mistakes and stuff that we've made, but like I feel like I've had kind of a lot of like conceptions about how this I mean industry i don't like that term but like i i, I don't have a better one well it, that's um, a transactional word but, but sure it is yeah that. like how how these things sort of work and i i'm very encouraged by the work that you do that that meets and and recognizes some of the importance of those transactional aspects but but doesn't just leave it there. I'm very encouraged that that there are people yeah. who are like, no, 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 it's okay. Like, I'm just just it's okay if you support a startup. Like, let's go yeah. in with our eyes open. But there could be really amazing things that could be be done here. And I I just I'm very encouraged by that. And I feel like it's it's something that a lot of people, if they're not in this space, they don't understand. 
um, mm-hmm. kind of like how that that works. Um, I'm interested in in like you've been in this sphere for for decades. You have a lot of experience and a lot of um, and I was wondering like how have you seen things changing? Like where are those shifts happening right now? Is it the same as it was when you were working with Bridgeview in like 2000 or have Bridgeway? Sorry, Bridgeway. It's Bridge Bridgeway Bridgeview. Yeah. Um, is it the same as, as when you were working in 2000 in those spaces or have there kind of been ways that, that this sphere has, has shifted? Hmm. Yeah. It depends what angle we're going to use when we're talking about this. Hmm. (laughs) Um, let's talk about, let's talk about Christian charities because this is, uh, so I don't work exclusively with Christian charities. I work with non-christian charities as well and non-christian clients as well so um but when i worked with bridgeway 90 percent of their money was going to christian charities and so i'm 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 have most of my experience with yeah that sector and seeing kind of what's been happening in that sector and and just as all of us all of us have been going through a theological realignment hmm. Over these years, over the past mm. two decades, I would say, at least in my own life, it's been a two-decade-long journey. Um, and I see the same thing happening within charitable organizations. Mm. You know, it's not just an individual thing happening; it's also happening institutionally mm. with all of these organizations too. Um, I see a growing willingness to partner with others that are unlike us. Yeah. Uh, less so, tribal, less tribal, very much less tribal. Um, not not threatened by difference. Hmm. It's a very healthy thing I'm seeing. That's good. Uh, one of the one of the most hopeful moments I think in the past decade that I experienced in this work was a grant that was given to Cardis. I don't know how much you guys know. I know Cardis Cardis. fairly well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Think Tank, Think Tank based in Ottawa and Hamilton. But they have international reach with their work. Um, But they they created a a project around the 150th anniversary of Canada um, in 19, in 2017. So that, that was 150 years since Canada was established in 1867. So they created a, a project called Faith in Canada 150, and it was around gathering people of faith to celebrate the role of faith in Canadian society in the past 150 years. And so they gathered, uh, they decided at the outset, this is not going to be a Christian thing. It's going to be a faith thing. And so they invited people of all faiths to come together to celebrate faith in Canada uh, over 150 years. So there were, there were Mormons, there were uh, Orthodox, there were Catholics, there were Buddhists, there were um, Hindus, there were other faiths, there were Muslims. Um, all of those faiths were represented at their events through that whole year. And so they had several events throughout Canada through that whole year. And it culminated in Ottawa on July 1st on uh, Canada Day. 
and we gathered for an event um, overlooking Parliament Hill. And you know, we saw the fireworks, but it, and it was like a gather. It was actually a physical gathering of all of these folks, religious leaders from across Canada and from various traditions. And it was super inspiring. That's amazing. Yeah. Like that was, that was really hopeful. I can see how you mentioned that as shift because it's only probably a generation ago that, that a Christian kind of charity or think tank or whatever wouldn't, wouldn't really conceive of, of reaching across those lines. Right. The thing I love about it is that no one is diminishing who they are by coming. Like they still hold true to if they're Catholic, that they are, whole 100% holy catholic yeah. you know with all of that what that entails if they're muslim you know they're believers in in allah and yeah. muhammad you know and so like it's not like you're it's not like a lowest common denominator right, right. Hmm. it's not it's not saying it's what, not a flattening yeah it's not what beliefs. we believe right. doesn't matter it's like because what we believe matters we are with others not against others there's a different mm. kind of so as we close i want to go back to the trail um yeah. And uh, we, I mean, having mentioned how mundane things are, now I'm going to ask for transcendence. Um, <laughs> we usually end our interviews by saying, like, what are you hopeful about? And in a way, that's asking, this is asking that. Uh, describe for us, if you can, uh, a moment of transcendence on the trail, kind of hope for the journey where I'm imagining that it would be, you know, when there's a long way to go or something. When but you don't uh, be yeah, there yeah. And then you see the light and you keep going. Uh, describe for us a moment of transcendence on the trail, hope for the journey. Mm. It's such a great question. Thanks for asking it. I, I went back to my blog. I blogged about uh, my Camino at followthearrowsblogspot.com. And my, my first and last Caminos are, are up there. Uh, but I had to go there to figure out, okay, what, what I need a transcendent story, <laughs> but um, I went back to the last day of my first uh, Camino and, and reflected on that first journey. And as I, as I walked on that first journey, one of the days I was walking, I came across these two Slovakian women who were walking along and I had recognized them. We couldn't, they didn't speak English. I didn't speak Slovakian, Uh, but I was walking along beside them and I could hear them kind of whispering a prayer of some kind of, they were saying something in Slovakian, but it sounded pretty repetitive and I didn't quite know what it was. And as I'm walking along, I finally realized, oh, they're praying the rosary in Slovakian as they had their rosaries out and I realized, Oh, they're praying the rosary. And so I, I was kind of walking in pace with them, but I didn't want to interrupt them or anything. And, uh, and then, but then they finally finished and they realized I was walking alongside them. And they said, I said, I said, were you praying the rosary? We had enough English to, you know, rudimentary uh, communication. Were you praying the rosary? Yes, we were praying the rosary. And and they said, what are you praying for? And and in that moment that they asked me that question, because I hadn't been conscious of what I was praying for, <laughs> I was just more concerned about getting to my destination. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it just kind of came to me, the kind of a metaphor 
for my journey. That's beautiful. Was that it was a birth canal for me. And this journey was a birth canal. And I felt like something new was being born in me. And I just want to leave that with you because yeah. it it takes me to my favorite verse that kind of has always kind of grabbed me, even as a child and up till today. And it's today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the desert. You know, it's an invitation that today, right now, we hear God's voice and that we be born again. We need to be born again every day, every moment. And talking with these nuns uh, helped me recognize that this birth canal was a daily thing. Uh, Mark, it's, it's, um, I picture you, I mean, and where to see the actual scene, it would look different than the imagination, <laughs> right? But I, I picture you walking on that trail kind of a few steps behind them. And yet this invitation to enter into the prayer of another and, and have that align with your own prayer, even if you're unaware of what it is, you know, the spirit interprets our groanings, right? That, uh, <laughs> and then to hear, uh, this this rebirth um, and and as we end just like we're getting to know one another we've seen you a couple times and talked a number of times and but again to say uh, uh, the that kind of journey whatever the contours are of that journey for you they're evident in the way you speak and that how it seems like when you speak what matters most to you is the, are, are those kinds of connections with people but with people in the context of God's presence over mm. this whole thing. And so thanks for talking yes, to us you, because we, we love the work you're doing. Um, but even better than the work you're doing is that for us is the, is the connection of just having, you know, seen who you are. And uh, so keep, keep working, keep writing. And we're um, thinking of you and all these connections and thanks for taking the time with us today. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for all you're doing. Yeah, And best in Columbia too. Yes. Hope oh, to come down come there and see you sometime. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much. Bye bye. Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Cupboard by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.